Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. In the fields outside of a small Pennsylvania town, two massive armies collided, provoking the bloodiest battle of the Civil War 160 years ago, uh, July 1. June, 1863. 200,000 are dead, and the Civil War is barely half over. Now, General Robert E. Lee aims to move the war from Virginia and win a major battle in the North. He hopes to stoke the fire of a growing peace movement. His 75,000-man Army of Northern Virginia moves swiftly into south-central Pennsylvania. Union General George Gordon Meade and his 95,000-strong Army of the Potomac moves toward Lee. Lee concentrates his army where 10 roads converge. Gettysburg. Lee's move north will spark the largest battle in American history. It will last for three days. All right, so I want to welcome back to the program Dr. Bill Forstian. He is a historian. He's a professor at Montreal College, also the author of the best, uh, best-selling author. The latest one in the installment now is five years after it's available in stores now. Uh, Dr. Bill, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good afternoon, Pete. Glad to be with you on this July 3rd. Yes, sir. And so uh, we've done this before in the past. Uh, I'm not sure if we ever did it on July 3rd. Um, but uh, we kind of walk through this three-day battle because it, it was so important, and it is so important to our history. Um, so for, we, we learn a little bit in that clip right there about what brought the armies to that place at that time, right? It was, it, this was Lee's attempt to, what, finish the, finish the war? Yeah, the, you've got to remember that the South was essentially an agrarian army that's mobilized to go to war. They've been fighting in Virginia for over a year. The land is stripped. Lee wanted to go north for a number of reasons, one of them because of all the rich farmland to take uh, supplies from as he got into uh, Pennsylvania. Um, You know, the South was wearing down. He needed one more good fight, a victory that would secure the war. So he sought it in the north while using the supplies of the north to keep his army going. And he was successful, right? I mean, up until this battle. Absolutely, yes. Uh, the Confederates exclaimed they were in the land of milk and honey. Um, they hadn't seen such resources in months. So up until the moment of contact, we had the upper hand. He uh, was in a good position, though you got to realize Gettysburg was never intended by either side to be the battlefield. Well, why don't you go into that a little bit? Sure. Wait, what? Say, say that again? Well, Gettysburg was never intended to be the major site right. of the battlefield. Yeah. Uh, Lee was looking to a position about five miles north. 
Meade, on the other hand, was looking at what was called the Pipe Creek line down towards Taneytown and Emmitsburg. And they just sort of collided with each other, and the battle went from there. Right, so one of the myths that I uh, I was not aware of, but I had seen it when I first started doing research on this years ago, was that, um, that oh, the, it, the whole battle started over shoes. Right, nope. so that's not true for fe- for people who be- who still think that is true. It's not true. So, uh, w- where did that come from? Do you know? Well, Jubal Early's division had passed through Gettysburg several days earlier. They pretty well stripped it clean. In fact, there were two battles at Gettysburg. The first battle was fought, I think, June twenty sixth or twenty seventh, when a militia regiment tried to turn out to meet Early. They ran after one volley. Almost the entire regiment was captured. And as a humiliation, the Confederates stripped them naked and told them to go home and just get out of our way. <laughs> okay. So, uh, all right. So so uh, this idea, I think it came, there was a mention of it in a book or something later on. Some general had said that they were like scouting out for supplies or something. and uh, But that, that that does not appear to be the case. So what did prompt the battle? What did prompt the battle was uh, Lee sends a probe down towards Gettysburg to try and ascertain where the Union Army is. He wasn't quite sure. On the other side, the Union sends a light division of cavalry forward towards Gettysburg to ascertain where Lee is. And these two units met at Gettysburg. The Confederates retreated without firing a shot. In fact, uh, some of the Confederate soldiers were waving to the Union soldiers as they marched back out of the town and set up position a couple miles away. But this was the precursor for the storm that was going to hit the following morning. All right, so uh, the following morning, now this is July the 1st, and right. um, they this is now first contact, right? And uh, the Confederacy seems to have, uh, at some point during the day, right, They it seemed like they did a good job. They were beating the Union. Well, it was a seesaw battle in the morning. Another great myth about the battle, propagated in part by the movie Gettysburg, is that the Union Cavalry uh, Division fought a desperate, barely hang-on type of fight until a corps, about 10,000 Union infantry, came up to support. There was a lot of heavy skirmishing, but it was nowhere near uh, the type of fight as portrayed in the movie. But early in the afternoon, as Lee's getting more men in, uh, it finally unfolds into a massive assault that catches two Union Army Corps, corps about 10,000 men, 1st and 11th Corps, north and west of the town, and absolutely drubbed them. That by the end of the afternoon, about 7,000 men were taken prisoner and casualties. That pretty well destroyed those two corps. So at the end of the day, one of the things that saved it, again, not much known about, is that the Union artillery commander, Henry Hunt, put 45 cannons on top of Cemetery Hill. He just ringed the hill with artillery and basically was saying, come and get it. So there's another myth. The Confederates could not have taken that hill the first day. They would have been slaughtered by the artillery. But Lee decided to continue the fight on into the next day. So that sounds like, um, because what's his name? Uh, Lieutenant General Richard Ewell, right? Uh, That Lee had said, oh, you know what? You can take the hill if practicable. And he doesn't. And so... I, you know, I keep seeing this uh, this same sort of familiar framing that, uh, oh, it was the biggest missed opportunity and uh, it no. would have changed the whole direction of the of the battle. No, 
because uh, a lot of negative, but also a lot of positive for the 11th Corps commander, Oliver Otis Howard. He ordered one brigade of his advancing army to stop on Cemetery Hill and dig in, because he had a gut feeling this is where it was going to be decided. There's no way Dick Yule could have taken that. And beyond that, Yule's uh, divisions, early in particular, these guys have been fighting and marching for 17 miles since dawn. They were exhausted. They yeah. just couldn't go further that evening. Yeah. So the battle simmers down with the Confederates occupying the town and to the left of town and arcing around onto Seminary Ridge. All right. So that then uh, will take us to uh, day two. Um, my guest is Dr. Bill Forston. He is a historian. He is a professor at Montreal College, and he is the author of uh, several books, best-selling books, uh, including the latest is now Five Years After, which is available on Amazon and in stores and such. Um, and he is also appearing at uh, uh, the Heritage Life Skills event at the end of the month. Um, and uh, so you can go check him out there as well. We'll have more with Dr. Bill in a moment. Oh, hey, real quick, before I forget, Carolina Readiness Supply is prepping for its annual Heritage Life Skills event. It's coming up in July, and you can learn how to be better prepared and self-sufficient in the event of any emergency. Things like homesteading, canning, water storage, radio communications, herbal remedies, home defense, fermenting vegetables, all sorts of stuff. This is what Carolina Readiness Supply does. For beginners, all the way to the most experienced preppers, Carolina Readiness Supply can help. Get your tickets now at carolinareadiness.com. That's carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? All right, so my guest is Dr. Bill Forston. He is a historian and a professor at Montreat College uh, in Western North Carolina here. And um, he's also a best-selling author. Uh, the latest book, Five Years After, is available. Um, we're going over the sort of the, the tick-tock, the chronology, day-by-day day unfolding of the Battle of Gettysburg. It's 160 years ago, July 1, 2, and 3. We've gone through day one, so now we're into day two. Um, so first, let me step back, because you mentioned, Dr. Bill, you mentioned um, something about, like, these are the guys, they were they were marching for 17 miles, they were exhausted. It's, I think it's important to keep in mind, like, this was really nasty weather, hot, sticky. It's like in the 90s or something. And these guys are wearing, right, wool uniforms, right? You've got it. Wool, carrying all that equipment. Sixth uh, Army Corps marched something like 27 miles in one day uh, to get up to reserve in the battlefield. So these men are exhausted beyond everything else. And supplies of water, where are you going to get fresh water? It was a tough haul on both sides. You have 150,000 men converging on Gettysburg. Uh, it, it's a miserable time. The weather is not all that good. Scattered thunderstorms, temperatures mid to upper 80s, and hot, very humid throughout. What was the state of medicine available to uh, the wounded on the battlefield? Oh, Lord. You don't want to even think about it, really. Uh, they did have triage at that point, uh, but if when you, you've got to remember the weapons they were hit with. A one-ounce mini ball is just lead, soft lead. When that thing hits you, it expands out. So let's look at it this way. Shot in the gut, almost 100% dead. Shot in the chest, 50% chance of dying. Hit in the arm or the leg, if the bone is broken, it's going to have to be amputated. A good surgeon can amputate a leg in five minutes, an arm in two to three minutes. Now, contrary to myth, they had 
plenty of chloroform on both sides, but still, you inevitably went into infection afterwards. It was a hellish time, and there were over 50,000 casualties on that field at the end of three days. That means dead, wounded, and missing, but still, about 20,000 wounded. When the Confederate Army withdrew on July 4th, that 10 to 15,000 men were just loaded into springless wagons and hauled all the way back to Winchester. It was a trail of misery. 40,000. In, in the Battle of Gettysburg, by far the costliest battle of the Civil War, but not necessarily the largest, as I understand. Um, you said 150,000, 160,000 troops present at Gettysburg. There were more at Fredericksburg. Is that, uh, is that correct? Yes, there were. Okay. Uh, and then when you go into the next year, the Overland, what's called the Overland Campaign, when Grant went from uh, the Rapidan River near Fredericksburg down to Richmond, 70,000 casualties in 45 days. What does that do to the mental state of the guys who are fighting? The mental state? Yeah. You know, it's often quoted, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who years after the war said, in our youths, our hearts were touched by fire. That's memory 20 years afterwards. Shortly before the Battle of Cold Harbor, he wrote to his father, and he said, if I had to do this one more time, I fear I just might commit suicide. I think he was wounded seven times during the war. Joshua Chamberlain, five times. General Gordon hit in the head. The only thing that saved his life was the hat was too big. <laughs> and they had folded up a newspaper to make the hat fit, and that absorbed most of the blow. But he almost drowned anyhow because he fell into his hat and was bleeding like crazy. So the, the casualty situation was simply horrific. And PTSD? I can't see a man who didn't come out of that war with deep problems for the rest of their life. Um, I remember we talked one time years ago about people's hesitancy to shoot at another human being. And one of the things, and I believe it was Gettysburg that you told me about, was the number of firearms that they found afterwards that had never been fired. Well, it wasn't a question of hesitancy. Uh, you're doing volley fire. You, you, you're, you're conditioned to shoot. But the problem is you're so rattled and so terrified. You think about loading a musket. you got to tear open a cartridge, pour the powder in, put the bullet in, ram it all down, pull the rammer out, which a lot of guys forgot to do, put a percussion cap on. One gun was found with 23 rounds jammed down the barrel. So it wasn't so much hesitancy, it was just sheer fear that a lot of times just, just froze men in place. They couldn't shoot. So that second day, that was the largest and the deadliest, the costliest of the three days, yeah. right? July 2nd? Yeah. All right, so walk, okay. us, yeah, walk us through what happened there. This is the day when uh, at least 100,000 soldiers, 20,000 killed, wounded, or captured, or missing. Okay. We decide to flank to the right. There's a lot of controversy about this decision, but the Confederate Army prepares to start moving out shortly after dawn. A reconnaissance is sent out along Lee's right towards Little Round Top, and a major or Captain Anderson reports back, hey, the road's clear. You can go around with no problem. To this day, nobody knows where the hell he looked, but he definitely didn't go towards Little Round Top. So based on that faulty reconnaissance, about 20,000 men start moving down what's known as the 
Black Horse Tavern Road, to the right of the Confederate line. They get about a mile down the road, and the head of the column comes up to a crest, and they go, crap! Because the Union Army's looking straight at it, it's only a mile away. They have to turn the entire army around and backtrack. Now, if you've ever had an argument with your spouse about missing your exit, can you imagine that <laughs> moment of having to reverse all these troops, artillery, and everything else and backtrack? So it's not until about 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon that the Confederate Army finally gets into position after an exhausting march without water. They were running out of water. On the other side, the uh, I'm a big fan of a General Dan Sickle. I think he did the right thing. Sickles moves his corps forward because he's got a stinking suspicion the Confederates are going to hit me, and they're going to hit me hard. I want to be forward. What he does, though, is he walks into a hornet's nest when at about 3.30, the whole Confederate right wing of a couple divisions goes smashing into his core and tears it apart and starts overlapping it and heading towards the little round top. And, uh, what was North Carolina's, the North Carolina uh, uh, troops, what was their role? What were they, where were they, what were they doing? All right. I think the best example there is the 26th North Carolina, which was recruited right from here. All right. One of the companies came from Buncombe County. The after action report for the 26th North Carolina starts as follows, kind of paraphrasing slightly. Uh, letter to Governor Vance saying, Sir, on the morning of July 1st, I, my unit, the 26th North Carolina, advanced into Gettysburg with 750 men out of, under arms. I have 75 left. And for folks who aren't aware, folks out in western North Carolina in the mountains did not, uh, uh, they didn't own a lot of slaves on plantations. No. That was not a uh, that was not part of the a lot of the lifestyle the culture out there at that time. These were these were mountain boys that got conscripted in or signed up and went to go fight for North Carolina. And you know, best summed up by a Confederate prisoner like one of these boys, who a Union soldier was arguing with him, saying, well, "What the hell are you fighting for? Are you, do you believe in slavery? No, I'm against it. Well, what are you fighting for?" And he said, because you're on my land. My guest is Dr. Bill Forston. He's a historian and a professor at Montreal College out in Buncombe County and the best-selling author as well. Uh, his latest book is called Five Years After, uh, and it is available as part of the One Second After series. Um, we'll get into the final day, which is 160 years ago today. Uh, this includes uh, Pickett's Charge uh, and also a story he's got about the reunion of those soldiers very interesting what happened. Um, up next. All right, now you've heard me talk about them. Old Grouch's military surplus. They're expanding with more ways to get your hands on authentic U.S. military surplus items. Go to oldgrouch.com. Check out the links for the online auctions for rare finds and the vintage shop. Unique, really cool items from modern tactical gear to historical collectibles. Tim at Old Grouch's is always finding new stuff. When I started the podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, my first advertiser was Old Grouch's. If you enjoy the show and derive any value from it, I'm hoping that you will consider supporting one of the businesses that make it possible. Lots of gift ideas for that person who loves the military style for fashion or decor. There really is something for everyone at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in beautiful downtown Clyde and online at oldgrouch.com. So 160 years ago, in almost half an hour from now, 
uh, a battle was, uh, or the, the the Pickett's charge was uh, was begun. This is the third day in uh, the the Battle of Gettysburg. Doctor Bill Forston is a historian, professor uh, as uh, at Montreal College, as well as an author of best selling books, and the latest one is Five Years After. And uh, we've been going through the three day battle, the bloodiest, costliest one of the Civil War. Um, and we are now on day three, right? So this starts off, Doctor Bill, uh, in the morning, right? There's some what, some some cannon firing going on in the morning. Yeah, there's some battling over on the right flank on Culp's Hill. Hot, humid day again. Lee makes a decision that he's to attack the left flank. No results. Right flank almost carried the day on the second day. Third day, he's going to go right up the middle, and what became known as Pickett's Charge. Uh, it was Pettigrew's division, which were almost all North Carolina boys, including the 26th North Carolina, about 12,500 men. Uh, Prelude will be an artillery barrage, the largest on the American continent, 160 Confederate artillery pieces open up. However, in the smoke and confusion, very quickly the shots are going over the top of the ridge and inflicting very little damage on the position that's about to be assaulted and finally the order is given to go forward i would think of faulkner's quote famous quote about in every southern boy's heart there is again a july afternoon in 1863 when all things are still possible the confederates went forward thinking if we can carry this we could very well win the war but on the other side are union troops who are fighting on northern territory a fair number of Pennsylvania troops, and the attitude there is, I'll be damned if I'm going to be pushed back another foot. So it is set for a massive, hellicious 45-minute charge in which 70% of the Confederate soldiers are killed or wounded. Let's take a listen here. This is uh, audio that I pulled, actually, from uh, to, to hallowed ground, uh, this uh, part of the uh, Gettysburg uh, Memorial and Battlefield uh, presentations. June, 1863. No, that's the wrong clip. That's my bad. Here we go. <laughs> At 1 p.m., Lee bombards the Union defenses, hoping to soften them up. Meade responds, and together, they create the largest artillery barrage in the Western Hemisphere. Ultimately, Lee's bombardment fails. Nevertheless, Pickett's attack commences at 3 p.m. 12,000 men emerge from Seminary Ridge. They must cross one mile of open ground. Union artillery opens at long range and tears gaps in the Confederate line. Meade orders more than 20,000 reinforcements to converge upon the center. Ohio, New York, and Vermont troops position themselves upon the flank of the Confederate advance. The Confederates are moving into a great pincer of Yankees. The Southerners enter rifle range. And fewer than half cross the Emmitsburg Road. But with second and third line troops coming up, some manage to breach the Union position. A ferocious melee ensues. As tens of thousands of Union reinforcements arrive, the Confederate attackers dwindle. Lee's men don't stand a chance. 
those who cross the stone wall are either killed or captured. Lee's great moment of opportunity has become his greatest defeat by far. Scarcely half of the men who made the attack returned to Seminary Ridge. All right, so Dr. Bill, you heard the mention there of the stone wall. What is what, what is the stone wall and, and where was it located? Okay, stone wall is on Seminary, Cemetery Ridge. It's about 200 yards above, uh, slightly above off the Emmitsburg Road. The real slaughter point was when the Confederate Army hit the Emmitsburg Road. That was a major turnpike of the day with stout fences on both sides. The men had to climb up over the fences while under fire, cross the road, climb up over a second line of fences. After the battle, about seven or 800 Confederate dead were buried right there, right alongside the road. When they hit the stone wall, which was about thigh high, uh, it was already over. Uh, one case, there was six artillery guns, Union, uh, you know, artillery. And you can read the plaque there, which says double canister at 10 paces. They waited till the Confederates were right at the wall, unloaded. Each can of canister had about 50 to 60 iron balls in it. Double each one. You've got a thousand balls going down range. It wiped out an entire regiment just in one blast. It was hell. Mm-hmm. And so this was the this was the wall that they were all racing towards. And yeah. um, at some point in the future, there is there's a reunion held right yeah. for for these veterans on both sides at the same time. Yes. What was the one? What was the point of that? <laughs> you want to hear about it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. 1913, about 20 or 25,000 veterans of the battle returned you know, to commemorate the 50th anniversary. And there have been a lot of reconciliation efforts on both sides to try and heal the nation. About 500 Confederate soldiers who had participated in the original charge again crossed the field. These men, their average age is in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So they get up to the wall, and there's a very famous newsreel footage of it and photographs of the Confederate and Union soldiers you know, shaking hands over the wall. Ceremony's over. One of the Confederate soldiers goes to climb over the wall to go to the bus. Union soldier looks at him and says, what the hell are you doing? The Confederate soldier says, I'm going. He said, you didn't cross this wall in 63. You're not going to cross it now. And the Confederate soldier says, the hell, I see you say. Starts hitting him with a cane. (laughs) Next thing you know, there's this huge battle of these guys caning each other. Nice. They have to be separated by National Guardsmen. And what's the important point was, there was fear that that evening there was going to be a riot because of this. You know what they were doing? Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers got together, got the barrels of whiskey out, and they all got drunk together. So the, the, second, the second battle at the wall, the, 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 the canings at the wall, that did not turn into a larger brawl. No, I think it was actually kind of amusing. Old Grandpa, you know, I almost took this wall once. I'm going to do it again. You know, one of the regiments, again, 26 North Carolina, the University Grade Division, which were boys from Chapel Hill, the entire company was wiped out in that charge. It's unreal. Um, Dr. Bill, yeah, go ahead. You know, 
you, I was thinking about this yesterday. The level of noise is beyond belief. I mean, I was at a reenactment once where there was like just a reenactment, and there was like 40 artillery pieces. You, you, you thought you were going to go deaf. Mm. Can you imagine 25,000, 30,000 men struggling across the front of six to 800 yards? One other point. I've been to Omaha Beach, you know, from D-Day. That's a beach two miles long. We lost 2,500 men taking that beach on June 6th. At Gettysburg, compress it down to about three to 400 yards of front, and there was about five to 7,000 casualties in that narrow space. 160 years ago, at this moment, in about 10 minutes from now, uh, was about to begin Pickett's Charge at the Battle of Gettysburg. And after it was over, uh, the war shifted. Uh, my guest is uh, historian and professor uh, and author Dr. Bill Forstian from uh, out in Western North Carolina. And um, what made so when the, when Pickett's charge fails for the Confederacy, um, what then? How how does like uh, everybody goes like in camps for the night and all? But then what happens like the next day? The next day it rains and it will continue to rain. The Confederate Army starts to pack up on July 4th to retreat. As I mentioned earlier, about at least 10 to 12, 13,000 wounded are loaded into springless wagons to take the long haul all the way back to a railhead at Winchester, you know, 100 miles away. It is a disastrous defeat for Lee. Uh, one point there. Remember I said earlier, it's essentially an agrarian society that's gone to war. Mm -hmm. It took him three months to replenish his supply just of artillery expended during the battle. The Union Army, they could resupply it in a week. The Confederacy cannot stand much longer against an industrialized society. They'll fight defensively for another year, but never again will Lee launch the type of offenses he did in 1862 and 63. And... Uh, Vicksburg falls the July day after. Yeah, July fourth. July fourth. And so, do you think that's the turning point of the war? Yes. Yeah. Though it's not going to be realized for some time. Right. Uh, the Confederacy is hanging on. It's one of the land of falls. Uh, September first, eighteen sixty-four. That the end is now clearly in sight. In the spring and summer of sixty-four, uh, Lincoln kind of assumed, "I'm going to lose the election this fall because the country is just simply." war-weary. There's been over 500,000 deaths at this point. We're exhausted. Both sides were exhausted, but the North hung on longer. I saw also that this battle and this loss, um, it damaged Robert E. Lee's image, essentially, right? That up until this point, he thought of himself and his troops, really, as invincible. Others thought of him as invincible. He was like this icono, uh, uh, iconic uh, general, and now it showed that he could be beaten. Yes, and the real controversy about the battle is going to start with the historians and the participants 10 years later. <clears throat> when the first accusations came out that Lee screwed up at Gettysburg, no, it was General Longstreet, it was this and that. In fact, in around 1880, a very popular magazine of the day commissioned battles and leaders of the Civil War. Anybody could write in their account of what happened at particular battle. Well, can you imagine a little post office, you know, somewhere up in Northern Virginia, the newspaper arrives and the boys are gathered around the old veterans and suddenly they're going, that's not the way it happened. It <laughs> happened this way. 
And that's an argument that continues to this day. Who won, who lost, and why, and what it did to the war. I recall reading a passage about Lee refusing to participate in helping mark the areas or to build monuments to anything. He didn't want any of it. Um, He didn't want statues to himself, and he did not want, he didn't help them with any of the marking of where the troops moved and all of that at Gettysburg. No, the the big guy for that was actually Dan Sickles, who lost his leg at Gettysburg. He got blown off by a cannonball. And he became very big in the Gettysburg uh, Monument Society. you got to realize, you go to Gettysburg today, it is a battlefield, but it's also a Victoria Memorial Park. There's about 2,000 different monuments there at Gettysburg, commemorating all the units, all the divisions, all the generals right down to if a general is on a horse and the horse has one paw up, that means he was wounded. If it has two paws up, that means he was killed. There's all sorts of Victorian symbolism in these monuments, and it's an incredible place to visit. Everybody should go there, absolutely everybody, because as Joshua Chamberlain once said, the famous Union general got the Medal of Honor for Little Round Top, this is the vision place of souls. I've been there at least 30 times. It is a vision place of souls. Four months after the battle, the Soldiers National Cemetery was dedicated. President Abraham Lincoln uh, delivered the address. This is not Lincoln. This is Jeff Daniels, but this is the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here, dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth.
All right, so Dr. Bill Forstian, uh, is there anything that I should go particularly see when we visit Gettysburg in a couple of weeks? Oh, my gosh, I wish I could go with you. <laughs> uh, you stop at the visitor's center. If possible, try, if the weather's good, try to walk as much of the battlefield as you can to get a better feel for it. Uh, the first day's battle along Seminary Ridge. Uh, Little Round Top is closed because the Park Service is doing a magnificent job with uh, restoring it. It's, again, every person should go there. You know, my neighbor, Lee Robinson, he had four of his ancestors at the battle. Two of them were wounded. And yet we sit together as friends and talk about this battle. We've been to the battlefield together. It, again, I have to say, Joshua Chamberlain's famous uh, statement that Gettysburg is the vision place of souls. You go there in the evening when it's quiet, you sit, you feel, you listen. Maybe those souls can gather around you. It is a very strange and wonderful place. Dr. Bill Forstian, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you spending so much of it with us, and uh, happy Independence Day to you. God bless this country, and the fact that we reconcile, you know, we got a lot of complaints against each other, but basically... We have healed as a nation, even though we have issues today. Think of what we have achieved since the Battle of Gettysburg.